Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey, welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. This week, I'm joined by Professor Scott Giltner. Scott is a professor of history. He is an author, and he is a new friend. I've, I started talking to Scott a couple years ago, I guess, when I came across his book, Hunting and Fishing in the New South. I did an email type interview with him and published that on my website, and uh, shared on social media a bit uh, about this book and how important I thought it was. And that kind of precipitated some more folks getting a hold of that book that was really like an academic text that was written, you know, quite some time ago. I think it actually sold out and they had to do a second printing and it kind of reignited a passion for some of this subject matter with Scott. Uh, he came down to the lodge. We got to hunt and cook and hang out for a few days together. Got to take Scott on kind of his first hunt as an adult. And spoiler alert, he had some success. Uh, so that was really fun and validating. And kind of got to start a relationship with someone that I hope I get to do a lot more stuff with. We talked about doing some classes in the future together. So I uh, very much hope to have him on again because we really just kind of scratched uh, the tip of the iceberg here. And there's so much more to talk about on uh, some of these subjects about uh, American history, black history, the history of hunting, uh, so on and on and on. So please enjoy this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast with Professor Scott Giltner. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. I am back up at the lodge, Black Duck Revival in Brinkley, Arkansas, and I'm sitting around the dining table with Scott Giltner. Uh, it's Professor Scott Giltner. He's a professor of history and chair of Applied Liberal Arts and Sciences at Culver Stockton College in Canton, Missouri. Uh, you might have heard of him before. I did an interview, uh, like an email interview with him a couple years ago. He's also the author of a really fantastic book called Hunting and Fishing in the New South. It's Black Labor and White Leisure After the Civil War. Uh, he was... Uh, he was a, a guest on the meat eater podcast. You know, he really is kind of in this area. He's like one of, if not the foremost authority on it, but we've been talking back and forth for a couple of years. We, uh, we were going to do a kind of a hunt project thing that COVID got in the way of, but we decided to have Scott come on down here. We took him on his first, it sounds like his first organized hunts ever. I think he did a little bit of small game hunting as a child, and we got him on his first speckle belly goose. I mean, it's been a pretty fun weekend, but uh, we can talk about that a little bit. But yeah, Scott, thanks very much for being here, man. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a good pleasure. Yeah, dude. Uh, I'm super stoked to finally like meet in person. We've done like Zoom calls. We've talked on the phone, emailed back and forth. But uh, yeah, so like originally the program we were going to do, some stuff got in the way of it, and we had to do some restructuring. 
but we wanted to go ahead and get you down here and have you, you know, do some hunting. It's like we talked about it before. You, you're kind of very rooted in this academic side of it, and it seemed very appropriate to have you involved more in the business of it and, you know, actually see some of this. Uh, and was impressed, man. Uh, like you, I watched you absolutely drop your first goose a couple days ago. Uh, and, you know, truthfully, we talked about it before. I was not very confident you were going to be able to do it. And first time out, it was the first shot you had, right? That was the first shot you dropped. Yeah, that it was goose? the first shot I took. Yeah, and I and uh, I, I even said, "Hey, I'm not at all confident with uh, with a shotgun." So, if I recall correctly, you gave me one shell at a time. That, yeah, for that hunt. So I gave you one shell at a time. I, when you got here the night before, we like laid down. I mean, you had been doing skeet shooting, trying to get ready for it, but you know that that's that ends up being very different than like sh- shooting in a kind of more dynamic environment so we only had a couple of people hunting I, I just did a buddy hunt i laid out there next to you and like focused my attention on you and making sure you're doing stuff right and safe try to set you up for, for success and yeah i was stoked that you were able to be successful uh and you know even to a lot of people you know it's a bird it's it's not this giant like adventure hunt scenario but i think as people who is like practitioners you know, of the art, if I can be so self-aggrandizing with it, the art of hunting or just, you know, being a participatory member of that activity, you know, you forget how monumental it is to have your first, uh, and you know, you haven't been desensitized to the, the sound and the, mm-hmm. the dynamism of it and the, the blood and the violence and all that stuff that, you know, just becomes normalized. Uh, but yeah, man, I'd, I'd really be interested to just kind of hear your, your take on it. We'll talk, we're going to talk about your book and your work and sure. all that other stuff, but I'd love to hear just, you know, like you tell me like, what was it like, man? You had to ride, you had like two layovers, you travel mm-hmm. all day, you get down here, we hang out for like an hour and a half. And then the next morning, you know, I've got you out in the dark next to a grain silo, uh, getting ready to to see this spectacle of uh, snow geese and speckle bellies. It, it was amazing. It, it really was. I, you know, I think for me, what, what had me so excited about, about the thought of actually getting down here and, and going out in the field with you, and we talked about this yesterday, I think, is the fact that, you know, the more time passes, I start to feel kind of unbalanced as, as you know, the guy who studies this stuff academically but the number of years between when I've actually done it for real just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it sort of got embarrassing after a while. I'd go to a, you know, a local church or, you know, an organization nearby and give a presentation on my research. And people would say, oh, you grew up in the country on a farm and you study this stuff. You must really be a big sportsman. And I would say, no, not really. I don't really do that. And it was kind of embarrassing after a while. So it was nice just to to get out there and do it and sort of get the the real world application of what I've been talking about. But then like you said, I wasn't prepared for that feeling. When, when I saw that I dropped that speck, I mean, you're, I'm sure you remember, I mean, I shouted. That was like the coolest thing ever. I saw that I hit it and I decided to sh- shout it, probably something I shouldn't say on the podcast. But uh, it was an amazing feeling. And it, it, it's uh, just to feel like, hey, there, this is something I'm capable of doing, which I didn't know if that was the case or not. <laughs> so it was kind of cool to, to, drop, to drop a bird and say, yeah, I did that. That's something I can do and I can do it again. Hopefully. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's also interesting to think about, you know, that we've become 
in modernity, we've become so separated from that because even though I'm, I'm a big proponent of reminding people that, you know, even if we go back to, you know, people living in caves or this kind of hunter gatherer style lifestyle, right? However many thousands of years ago you want to go to, everybody wasn't a hunter, right? You I mean, you had specializations, but I think the more we've entered this idea of modernity and I'd say like post industrial revolution, we've really removed the familiarity with death from a lot of people. Right. So like if you go back to the civil war, right, there was a familiarity with death that people had because of, you know, I would say probably during the civil war, like everybody was tied to somebody that had died, but also just people didn't live as long Mm -hmm. You know, you could get sick and die, you know, children not living to adulthood. Uh, And then just a familiarity, even with like the way you obtain meat, like the, you know, people around you are hunting or you're going to the butcher and they're, you know, actually chopping up stuff that looks like a mammal and they're breaking that down into, into these cuts of meat. And we've been really kind of removed from those processes to the point now that that, yeah, man, you know, someone could go, what, as we've talked about with you, what, probably 30 years? Mm-hmm. Like, you haven't, uh, you know, I mean, it, to say this bluntly, like, you haven't killed anything in probably 30 years. Yeah, that's it. And it's, and it's uh, I, I think we put a lot of value on hunting and killing big things and that somehow think that smaller animals or animals that are, we see more commonly, that it's a... Uh, it's a lesser experience. Um, and yeah, I think your experience proves that it's not, you know, and hopefully, I mean, hopefully this is like your gateway drug, you know, it's kind of like the first one's free <laughs> and now you've really got to put the, the effort into becoming proficient if that's something you choose to do. Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of my plan, you know, you know, at heart, you know, I, you know, at heart, I'm a country boy, which is, which is part of the deal, but I'm also, you know, a, a geeky academic. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoy, you know, learning things and figuring out systems and, you know, really enjoying that yesterday made me, or day before yesterday made me think, yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back into this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start uh, doing more of the real world side to maybe see if I can round out uh, kind of the way I look at things academically and historically. And I think part of it is, is maybe about uh, kind of what you said. I've been thinking a lot about this in the past couple of days because we've talked about it a lot, sort of philosophically how people look at feeding themselves. And it's one of the illusions of the modern world, I think. We've somehow imagined that, um, you know, that uh, we don't survive by killing because we get it at a grocery store. And people just sort of lose sight of the fact that there's no difference, I guess, between, you know, there's a difference in terms of how you do it, but, it, you know, you're, you're, you're killing something to live. And we package it in grocery stores and pretend we're not doing it Mm -hmm. and it's 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 dishonest it's it's an illusion and it's kind of interesting to me to to get back into into the field and and see and do that and remind myself that i'm part of this system and to have no illusions about how it operates yeah and it's you know there's a lot to it for me that is just involving that like you know Look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some assumptions, right? I'm pretty sure you're never going to go to Africa and, like, kill an, kill an elephant, right? Probably not. So I think when people think of hunters, they think of, like, a couple images come to mind. 
it's like some guy in like a black and red checked shirt and a orange vest, you know, that ties a deer to the bumper of their Packard. Where they think of this kind of like this historical idea of like the great white hunter, like this kind of uh, Western European, almost aristocrat that's like down in sub-Saharan Africa and they're wearing like uh, khaki and linen and they have they're they're killing these examples of this like kind of giant charismatic megafauna, right? Hippos and lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! Um, and you know, for different reasons, both of those kind of ideas are problematic. But you know, again, to think about the idea that everyone's not designed to or supposed to be a hunter. But they can at least be aware that they're participating in these kind of inherently violent cycles. Mm-hmm. You know, and people have talked about this ad nauseum. But the idea that if all you did was eat plant-based stuff, you know, every time these giant combines, and we've, you've seen, you know, like we're in an agricultural area. We were hunting some stuff yesterday that we were able to hunt because they had finally got in there and harvested this grain. Uh, you run one of those giant combines through a field. I mean, small mammals, mm-hmm. insects, birds. Like you saw those snipe that were living in that stuff. There's kill deer. There's any number of things. Like they're they're all getting killed, and they're mm-hmm. getting like ground up, and you know, like this mechanized kind of nameless, never seen sort of weird uh, destruction of life. Mm-hmm. So, and and I'm not even trying to be overly romantic and there's no demonization towards anybody Mm. about that but yes these these cycles exist and it's it is disingenuous and it's 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 an illusion to pretend that we're not participating in it you know like saran wrap there's a whole lot that comes between there's a lot of blood and shit and you know and kind of unpleasant stuff that's getting you that beautifully saran wrapped Mm -hmm. pork loin in a in a high dollar uh, grocery store, you know, in a Western city. For sure. You know, I, I think what, what I was thinking about, and, you know, and I, I tend toward the romantic always, so this is going to sound romantic, but uh, what I was feeling, you know, kind of processing that, uh, that spec hunt the other day, I was thinking about what you were just saying. You know, this is, you know, part of the natural agricultural cycle, and this is kind of the way it's been, you know, forever. And uh, you, you're part of that cycle. You get out there, you, you, you take down the bird, and then, you know, you and I have been eating speckled geese for the past three days. You know, and this yeah. is, you know, we're, we're kind of following through on that cycle. And I think about, you know, okay, I, I know where this comes from. I know its place in the cycle of, of the society that, that we're in out here. And uh, it's being done carefully, and it's being done respectfully, and then I think about the other side, and not to, not to criticize anybody, but, you know, I think about most of the meat that I get, almost all the meat that I get comes from the grocery. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know what they put in it. Uh, I don't know what the environmental implications are of the styrofoam. Well, I do know what the implications are of the styrofoam packaging and the plastic. And, and I think to myself, this is just a, it's a more honest, respectful way to approach feeding yourself. So I kind of like the idea of doing this more and more as a way of, you know, kind of reminding myself that this is a much more natural way of doing it. And, 
for someone to, to, to kind of knee jerk and say, oh, it's, it's so disrespectful and so mean to the animals. I'm like, I don't know that that's the case. I feel like this is a much more respectful way to do it than a grocery store. So for me, it's just kind of fascinating to be grappling with practical questions about what it means to hunt as opposed to historical questions about what it means to hunt. Yeah. And, you know, I think you're at, so look, this conversation we're having about sourcing and food and, you know, kind of alluding to like organic food and ethically sourced and all that. That's an entry point, I think, for a lot of people into this. So then what I would say is, so now you're at a point where you've got, you know, you got a little familiarity with that. Uh, but like now, if you really, if you really want to be involved in this, now is the point where you start to earn it, right? Because, and not to diminish <laughs> you in any way, but like you got, you got set up on, you like, you got put in a position to do that. Mm. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, there wasn't like even you called it a speckled geese or speckled goose, right? Mm. It's a speckled belly goose. You know what I mean? Mm. You haven't even had to learn the the finer points of like the species or mm -hmm. the activities or any of that stuff. Right. You know, yeah, I'm a tourist at this point. Yeah. Which is fine. And it's the point that that you should be at right mm. now. Right. But now you're also at a point where you can kind of choose your own adventure, right? And so, again, you're, you're an academic, you have a job, you're rooted to a place. Like, that's the whole thing. Like, you're not going to end up in Africa hunting elephants. You're probably not going to climb to the top of a mountain and chase a tar or like mm. a bighorn sheep or something, right? But you live in phenomenal whitetail country. You live in phenomenal Canada uh, goose country. You come from the land, like you live in Quincy, Illinois, man. Like, you come from the land where like the J-frame duck call was pretty much invented right a quincy cut right you were telling me the other day about that yeah yeah that's a, a quincy cut is a modification to an old ps old d2 at some point i will nerd out on this podcast and talk to people about that but like you can you know you can get really proficient with a shotgun you know you can learn about bedding if you want to start hunting whitetails you can learn about bedding areas and feeding areas and the transition between the two you can learn about pinch points you can learn about distinguishing uh what an animal is eating by looking at its scat you know is it soft mast is it hard mass and figuring out what they're doing mm -hmm. you can learn about the biological cycles of those animals because really you're pretty much always hunting animals when they're hungry or horny right so you're like exploiting the rut you're exploiting mm -hmm. the breeding cycles and the freneticism that that enters into the equation uh or like yesterday or two days ago i mean we were hunting a feed we like those geese were feeding in the agricult the agricultural remnants of that bean field and we knew they were there and we set up in a place that they wanted to come to and we just gave them enough to look like other geese were there so they would you know fly where we wanted them to so we could get a shot at them so there's all this stuff you can learn which I think makes it the, the practice way more richer. And then if you want to talk about the honesty of it, that's to me where it becomes like a real honest endeavor because you're exerting effort into it, you know? And even as we've talked about, like, you know, there's a level of physical fitness to really be like an active participant in it that you've got to have, right? And you're kind of on this journey where you're, for other reasons in your life, you're trying to, you know, just get more physically fit. And this can feed into that and you know, you can start having all these like cool branch off and intersect points. And 
that's where I think you, you really get to a point where you can start to consider yourself a hunter as opposed to someone who has just hunted. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're having, you know, it's the difference between a person who consumes history uh, in a, you know, kind of in an armchair way. And there's a person who like gets a history degree mm-hmm. and there's a person who becomes like a, a, an academic like yourself, like a person who's like really contributing to the narrative mm-hmm. of how history is taught and learned, mm-hmm. you know, for however many years. So you get to find where you want to be on that spectrum. So to me, this is actually, you're, you're actually now at the point that's most interesting to me and kind of most, uh, fraught with potential right and there's no there's no place that i want or expect you to get to with it it's just cool to me that you get to figure it out for yourself now yeah I, that, that's kind of how i'm looking at it too you know I'm, I'm still in the you know we're still we're sitting in the lodge you know we're surrounded you know by this environment and we're still yeah. we're talking endlessly about this so i'm You're in really, vacation mode yeah, yeah i'm in vacation mode so i'm really enthusiastic about it and I'm and I'm I'm famous for being super enthusiastic about things, especially at the beginning. Uh, you know, but what I really like about this is, um, you know, I think the the best history work that's done. Not that mine's the best, but you know, the the, the most relevant history work that's done is when people are really intentionally trying to apply lessons to the present day, just to try to you know kind of flesh out the context of contemporary human existence by you know looking at what came before. And, you know, I've sort of been, you know, living in that 19th century, early 20th century hunting world. You know, I was working on the book and I'm, I'm hoping that there's interesting lessons about, you know, race relations and out, outdoor life, et cetera, that, that, that might, you know, get people thinking in the present day. But the chance to apply the topic of my research to my own life is really interesting. You know, for years I've been, you know, giving presentations and talking about this and talking about how these practices were ways for, you know, slaves and former slaves later to achieve independence and, you know, make the most of, of their opportunities in life and, you know, have mobility and, you know, stay away from the, the controlling influences, you know, first the master and then later, you know, plantation owners and things like that. But I, you know, never applied that same thing to my own life. Like, what could, what could this do for me? How could this change my outlook? How could, uh, you know proving to myself that I could get into better shape and do some of these things that I never really tried before. What could that mean for me? So it's, it's really kind of an exciting application in a, in a, in a way, in a limited way, uh, what I've been trying to research. It, it just makes it more alive for me. And then, you know, selfishly, it's, I hope it's going to benefit me in some kind of professional or professional, personal growth kind of way. Yeah. Uh, man, that's actually a fantastic segue into, I'd love to just kind of let you talk a little bit about the work you do, you know, what your areas of focus are and with the understanding that this book that, you know, you've kind of had this, uh, you know, dare I say it revival Mm -hmm. of interest in, right. Is, I mean, this is a book you wrote 14 years ago. Yeah. 2008 it came out. So yeah, yeah, 13, what? Yeah. 13 years ago. Yeah. 13 years ago. And, and you know, it's in our conversation, it kind of seems like it has informed some of your current work, but you know, you'd moved away from it a little bit mm-hmm. and now you're having this opportunity to, to kind of revisit it. But I, you know, I'm interested in what you're teaching now. Uh, 
you know, I'd love to talk a little bit about this idea of like revisionist history mm-hmm. and then, then talk about this text and some of the, some of the, you know, pretty fascinating stuff that you have uncovered and compiled mm-hmm. and learned about. So, I mean, I guess that's, I just said a whole bunch of stuff, but man, if you would maybe just talk for a little bit about what, when you're teaching right now, what are you teaching? What are your areas of focus? What are your areas of expertise? Because Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all very much rooted in Mm -hmm. like American history, right? Yeah. So, well, you know, when I went to grad school, um, I was, I was, uh, I'm not even sure really how I got into this particular interest, but just through classes I had taken at Hiram college when I was an undergrad, I had a lot of classes that dealt with you know, race and ethnicity and, and things like that. And I, I knew I wanted to study something in, in those areas when I went to grad school. And I, I thought at the time that there would be this um, really exciting and not well-traveled road of, of studying sports. Well, you know, there's a lot of people studying sports. It's a huge established subfield in American history. I just didn't know that, you know, because mm-hmm. I was 20 and didn't, didn't know what I was doing. Um, so I went to graduate school, and the attitude from some of the professors I was working with was, eh, if you want to package yourself as a sports historian, okay, um, we can do that. What do you want to study? And um, I, at the time, I was, I was enrolled in this seminar on American slavery. And uh, the professor that was teaching it encouraged me to, you know, maybe the starting point would be uh, pick up the, the WPA slave narratives, you know, these interviews that were done in the 1930s with surviving slaves. Just kind of read through those and see if you Hold find... Hold freeze frame real yeah, yeah. quick. Because, uh, yeah, that's academic shorthand. So, oh, sorry. WPA, Works Progress yeah. Administration, this is... This is Delano Roosevelt, right? Yeah. So, so uh, during the Roosevelt administration, the, the Works Progress Administration was this huge, you know, federal jobs program to, to, to design to help uh, combat the Great Depression. And one of the small slices of the WPA was, was called the Federal Writers Project. And that included uh, support for, you know, playwrights to write plays, you know, authors to write novels, like some of John Steinbeck's classic stuff in the mm-hmm. 30s came out of the WPA and... John Dos Passos wrote the American Trilogy with WPA funding. Uh, but one of the things that some genius, I think, thought of was, hey, we have a lot of people that were former slaves, and they're very old, and they're going to be gone. So we need to dispatch people to uh, interview them and, and record their stories. Yeah, and recording had kind of just got to a point where, you know, by our standards, it would be arduous, but it was, it was a, it'd become mobile, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so there's these... Um, you know, transcripts and then, you know, a smaller number of actual recorded interviews, but these great uh, narratives taken by people that, that, you know, lived through slavery. In most cases, they were pretty young, you know, when, when, when slavery ended, but it's a really good source for historians. And I just sort of started reading through that. And, and I got it in my mind that I was going to do research on slave boxing, because I thought that would be a really interesting topic. And it is. But what I found was I couldn't find sources on that. I, kept, I couldn't find much discussion uh, of sports which kind of makes sense. I mean, it's, you're a slave. You don't have a lot of time for that kind of thing. But I thought what, what I could find would be really, really valuable. I always tell my students, uh, you know, you got to be wary of academics who get too elitist. You know, there's always that tendency in academia, like, hey, don't study, you know, don't study this popular thing or, you know, don't study sports. You go back far enough. It's why are you studying women? Why are you studying African-Americans? There's always this sense that, you know, it's kind of elitist view. It's still there. It's not as bad as it was, but it's still there. So I just thought, no, I, I, I want to go against that. I tell students, like, if something's important to people, like a large group of people, of course it's worthy of study, absolutely worthy of study. There's no point in separating 
high culture and low culture because more people exist in, in sort of the low culture side of things. So it almost cuts a slice of humanity off if you say, oh, if it's a popular activity, you shouldn't study it. So I've always wanted to study the popular stuff. That's why I gravitated towards sports. It's probably more indicative of like the mean, like the average. Yeah, kid, right? you know, I'm, I'm interested in how people live. You know, I, that, for me, that's what really is interesting. Like, what are people actually doing? What What were their life like? And, you know, what made them tick? This is like a kind of a studs turkle kind of like historic interpretation, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested. You know, I, I like ideas, too. You know, I'm an academic nerd. But for me, it's really about, you know, where the rubber meets the road is where people have lived experiences. Mm-hmm. So uh, the more I was reading these, these WPA slave interviews, I, I wasn't finding sports being discussed specifically but i was blown away by just the endless discussions of hunting and fishing and not just in a you know hey i went out and we caught some fish and it was good and we had food which was hugely important you know for an enslaved person but a lot of times and you certainly found endless descriptions of practical you know i had food you know, i took care of my family but you also would find occasional mentions of you know, I, I went out and I hunted and my master didn't know that I was out doing it. And I brought a bunch of meat back and I fed my family and he didn't know anything about it. And man, I felt free. Like you'd find those kind of descriptions. And I think I mentioned this when we were doing the podcast before. Um, the one that really got me was a, uh, an interview with a former slave named Charles Ball. And he wasn't in the WPA interviews. He, he had written a book uh, in the 19th century. And he talked about, um, uh, you know, buying from some white peddler who happened through the, the, the community where he was a slave, uh, he bought this old shotgun. And he talked about, you know, cleaning this thing up and getting it back in operating order and then stashing it in a hollowed out tree in the woods. And then whenever he could, he'd sneak away and, and go hunt with it. And I'll Is this forget, while he was enslaved? He, he was an enslaved person at that time. Okay. Yeah. And, and so he, he's doing, he's, he's on all sorts of levels because he's doing stuff that could get him killed oh, absolutely. just for having that gun. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, you know, there's this sort of uh, the myth of the plantation huntsman, like the loyal slave huntsman, uh, and that shows, you know, the loyalty of the slaves, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of larger plantations did have huntsmen, but there was no expectation that the, that the Southerners had that this was necessarily a good idea. In most states, if you wanted to put a gun in the hands of a slave and have them serve the plantation or farm in a formal capacity as a huntsman, you had to pay a bond to the state. The assumption was this could really be bad and you're responsible for this. So if you want to do this, you got, you know, I saw one case where a guy had to pay like $500 to allow uh, one of his slaves to have a gun, which is an extraordinary amount of money. And, you know, if you're cutting your food bill in half you know, with that, I guess it's worth it. Um, so this was, you know, potentially, a, you know, a really divisive, you know, a divisive thing. Kind of lost my train of thought there. But the <laughs> point I was trying to make was... Um, you know, for Charles Ball, who, who said something like, um, you know, for the first time in my life, I was living well, feeding my family, and feeling like an independent man. And I thought, well, this is way more than just a sport or way more than just feeding yourself. This, yeah, this is independence. Shit, this, is, this is mobility, freedom. This is the ability to disobey. Uh, and really, it, it kind of, to, to push back on the idea that feelings of, of competence and manhood and the ability to care for others and your family, that these are not just for white people. It was a real uh, sort of a, I don't know, like a clapback against the expectations of the slave system. So the more I read, the more I thought, no, this isn't just, yeah, they hunted and fished, so did everybody, who cares? For enslaved persons, um, 
this was a lot more. You know, and, I, and I, my whole life I've grown up with people uh, talking about what hunting means to them. And I always hear things like family and tradition and personal prowess and the ability to take care of yourself and confidence and things like mm -hmm. that. And I realized it's the same thing for slaves. And in fact, you could argue it's almost even more important for an enslaved person because these are all things that society says shouldn't be for them. So, um, you know, for whites who were using the sporting field in the South anyway back then, you know, for them, this is about status and honor and demonstrating capability. And these are all things they claim didn't apply to slaves. So for me, I thought this could be a really interesting project. So I started doing it for my master's thesis. And I think uh, what really fueled the work was when I first started working on the project, almost everybody that I talked to that was a professor of mine at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, eventually they were all incredibly supportive, but at first the response was, really, you want hunting and fishing? You want to study hunting and fishing? There was just this feeling that it, it, it didn't seem like a topic with much substance. But the more I wrote, was more, it uh, was it Was it a perception that it was lack of substance or just that it was like too base of a subject matter? I think it was a little bit of both. I think there were some people who were like, sports, you know, this is, this is too popular. But there weren't that many. I think most people were thinking like, you really want to grab onto something that's no pun intended meaty. Mm -hmm. Like you really want to have something that has substance. And I think people just saw it as maybe frivolous. Like, oh, this is not a serious topic. We know people hunting fish for food. So what? Yeah. That was so I got a lot of polite versions of that question. So what? Uh, but the more I read on this and the more I started doing the writing for the master's thesis, I started to think this really is kind of a, a window into the fundamental kind of clash in the 19th century South about a system that claims that people of color uh, can't be independent, can't do for themselves, shouldn't do for themselves, and then shouldn't enter into a white world of honor and privilege and masculinity and things like that. And, uh, you know, enslaved persons who were doing that, uh, especially those who did it uh, without permission, you know, clandestinely and things like that, I started to really think of this as, as kind of raised middle fingers to the slave system. And then uh, I started doing the research into the post-Civil War period, and it became even more apparent that now that slavery was over, it really is fundamentally a clash of uh, what do we think hunting means. And for 19th century Southerners, hunting was a white phenomenon that primarily served economic and class and uh, kind of personal aggrandizement purposes for those who indulged in it. And there really was no wor uh, room in that world for, for people of color, except in the subordinate capacity that slaves had always been in. So it was, for me, it's about, it's about a struggle a struggle for independence, a struggle for asserting your right to take care of yourself and take care of your family and engage in activities that, uh, that are being denied to you. You know, why can't an enslaved person, you know, make, make a sport out of hunting and fishing? Why can't they find it fun and a source of skill and competence and independence and a way to, you know, resist the will of the master? Why does it have to be you know, white people in the South invent this, this universe of uh, the mythology of hunting, but none of that applies to people of color. It just didn't make sense. So I thought this would be a good way to kind of position this story as a, as a key point in that debate, if that makes sense. And then so you're kind of talking about it during uh, periods of enslavement, mm -hmm. but then the book you wrote is actually about what came after. Yeah. Right? And the postbellum. Uh, and so everything you just said, and you know, to some degree, this would be applicable to, you know, before the Civil War. But you're also looking at uh, 
it's a means of economic upward mobility too, right? And I think that that is probably central to a lot of the prohibitions that we then mm-hmm. find coming in place and you know a lot of the source material you found with like I mean st- I mean straight up people saying like I can't find enough former slaves to work my fields because they're all out catching fish and mm-hmm. hunting and feeding themselves and they don't need to work for me anymore mm-hmm. right yeah, it, it, it was really interesting. The, the question that, that I was kind of primarily trying to figure out was, okay, it seems like under the slave system, most slave owners were, were comfortable at some level with, with some of the, with enslaved persons periodically hunting or fishing because it was a way to you know, save money on, on food stores. It was a privilege to be granted. And you know, I've read plenty of accounts of slave owners who saw it as almost like a kind of a noblesse oblige kind of old school European thing. Like I can grant this privilege to my slaves to hunt and fish and improve their life at home. And they'll, they'll love me for it. That kind of thing. Yeah. It's their, their, their carrot on a stick. Yeah, exactly. Degree. And then, and then from the, from the slave side, it was, it was a question about carving out distance and independence and, and resisting the rules when possible. And I wondered, okay, once slavery ends, what, what's that going to look like? Uh, you know, is, uh, is this going to be seen as a who cares situation? Are, are former slave owners going to be, you know, still in favor of this? Like, what, what's, what's, the, what's the landscape going to be after the Civil War? And what I found was uh, former slaves uh, had options, you know, now that they were freed. And one of those options was, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, for example, I'm not going to sign a sharecropping contract with you. I'm going to I'm going to get out there. I'm going to feed myself and my family through my own efforts, and I'll, I'll do it myself, and I don't need you. And that was completely unacceptable to, uh, to Southern whites because the agricultural system of the South was utterly dependent upon black labor. So this was you know, kind of a direct threat uh, to the system. Yeah, and we're and, talking about, just to be specific, yeah. we're talking about after the Civil War. So, you know, you have, you have black laborers working for uh, white plantation owners, mm-hmm. you know, forced unpaid labor, right? And then after the Civil War, they still need the labor to uh, continue in that agricultural operation. So mm-hmm. then you enter into this this sharecropping kind of company store type uh, model that that kind of takes root for the next hundred mm-hmm. years. Yeah, absolutely. And then what 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 I found was. Uh, it didn't take long for the narrative from former slave owners to turn into uh, sort of using the, the fondness that former slaves had or the, the dependence former slaves had on these activities to, to improve their lives to, to use the racial stereotypes to turn that into kind of markers of racial inferiority. Like, like oh, the, you know, these lazy former slaves don't want to work. They just want to go out and hunt and fish. They just want to have an old cane pole, yeah. walk around barefoot and... Catch trash fish. Yeah. But, you know, and, you know, and I'm not saying I, this was a light bulb moment for me, but it was a little bit of one. You know, just the past few days, you know, of us kind of driving around, checking out fields, scouting spots, you know, going on the spec hunt and things like that. You know, it's a hell of a lot of work. And to think that somehow somebody's saying, you know, hell with working for you, I'm going to go do my own thing and take care of my family myself is a sign of laziness. It's, it's kind of mind blowing to me. And, well, and, it's, and to be clear, what we're talking about is, uh, I, f- I feel like the side you've seen in it the last couple of days is really 
easy. It, it's, it's, you know, there's a real element of privilege involved in it, you know, that I'm getting to the point that I have access to now, you know, like hunting private fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like we're hunting stuff where there's not competition, right? Uh, and we're scouting, you know, I've got, I've got like quotation marks on that. We're scouting, but like we're just dry. I'm really, we're just driving around and seeing if birds were using these fields yet or whatever. That's very different than, you know, say like when I was bear hunting and I'm just trudging up and down and like mm-hmm. in these mountains we have in Arkansas, just looking for piles of shit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's just, what you've seen is at least uh, the investment of time. Yeah. And you know, this, the... You know, the, the, the sense that uh, on, the, on the one hand, uh, you know, former slaves continue hunting and fishing and, and, and expand it as much as they possibly can. Plenty of slaves were denied that privilege, and if they did it, they risked punishment. So there is this sort of uh, kind of explosion of, of former slaves in the sporting field after the war. And, you know, it, it's treated as a, as, a, as a potential catastrophe. It's a central part of the labor question, as they called it back then. How do we make sure these now freed people continue to work for us and eventually what they start to identify is what's allowing them to be independent and one of the things that was allowing them to be independent was unfettered access to fish and game so uh, what i thought was really interesting about about that side of the story was uh you know the longer the, the kind of post-war period ticks on and the more complaints about hunting and fishing emerge by, by freed people the more you start to see Southerners start saying this, well, maybe we do need to accept a conservation system because the South was incredibly resistant to conservation laws. There were conservation laws in place in the Northeast and in the West well before there was a system in the South. There was just this sense that poor white Southerners had, hell no, we're not going to accept these limits on our, on our, on our rights. Yeah there's, probably, yeah, there's probably a lot too of, and that still is very prevalent in the South, of distrust of like mm-hmm. the northern federal government and them imposing rules because uh you know and then because you know right after the civil war when you had enforcement of federal regulations mm-hmm. be, like you know still maintaining like union troops uh i think a lot of i think of a lot of white southerners felt like they had just experienced a brutal war right and there's a tremendous loss of life and destruction of property and all the shit that comes with war and like payback and pillaging and whatever. (laughs) And then their entire way of life is being, uh, is being restructured. You know, like a lot of people don't even realize that, you know, in the five, 10 years after the civil war, you know, you had elected black representatives (laughs) and, you know, like kind of, it was a, it was a large juxtaposition to, the last 400 years so yeah there probably is that too and to be clear we're starting to talk about the creation of the north american model of conservation as Mm -hmm. we know it right and so we're talking about you know writings and speeches and political action by people like uh you know another roosevelt Mm -hmm. like teddy roosevelt talking about like john muir uh that sort of implement implementation and you're saying there is a there is a tangible resistance to that in the south until they start to see a until some of the powers that be start to see a a way to link that towards this problem with labor and this issue of 
the self-assertment of black people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that, and that was sort of what I was looking for. You know, I, it, the, the story was kind of moving in that direction. It seemed to me that that, that was a connection that was going to emerge. And then eventually, once I started to you know, find it, it, it became more and more obvious. Like I started to, to dive into um, uh, game commissioner records from South Carolina from the early 20th century. And, uh, you know, I found these accounts of these game wardens as they'd go from county to county, kind of speaking on the state of things, you know, in the area. And, and they would bring up, you know, uh, hey, we got these, uh, you know, we got these conservation laws we need to address. We got to, you know, get the, the, the game hog out of the field and these market hunters that were just, you know, in their minds, you know, decimating game in the South. And we've got a lot of tourists coming down here now because a lot of our plantation land, especially like in rice country, had been, you know, kind of turned over into, into sporting resorts. So a lot of Northerners were coming down. And so there's big money in this stuff. And if we want to benefit from the presence of game and the money that comes from, from sporting tourists coming in, we need some rules. So in South Carolina, I was trying to get a, you know, a resident and non-resident licensing system set up, trying to put penalties in place you know, for poaching and things like that. And by and large, a lot of whites wanted nothing to do with it. So when I would see, you know, I remember a guy named A.A. Richardson, who was a game warden from South Carolina, and I had like five years of his travels and the different speeches he had, had like six or seven different speeches he had given. And at the beginning, he's talking about market hunting and game hogs and people that don't understand the need for conservation. We've got to do better. And it's very philosophical and economic. And then by the end, he's saying, look, we have this whole crew of former slaves out there running around killing everything with no regard for restraint, no regard for method, no regard for safety. And as far as I can tell, a game law is the only constitutional way we can use to get the guns out of their hands. And it it becomes like that blunt. So I started to realize that, not to sound cheesy, but at some level in the South, the conservation movement is partially about racial conservation as well. Mm -hmm. They kind of of dovetail together. Uh, hmm. I wasn't expecting you to stop so abruptly. Well, I, can what, keep, I can keep going if you no, want. No, no. I'm, and I'm about to try and uh, tee up for that. What? So then, I guess maybe briefly, like what happens, and then how does that lead us to, you know, our perceptions today? Mm-hmm. Where, like, now the last year and a half or so, there's been a lot of talk about you know, on some kind of patronizing sides, like Uh introducing, you know, quote unquote, non-traditional hunters to, you know, the joys of the outdoors, Uh uh, or, you know, maybe even like an idea of like a reactivation Uh in in some of these communities of a hunting tradition. Sure. Well, I think, and that's where the story really, for me, got really interesting, because I think I started off with just wondering was there a connection between these, these issues and the conservation movement? Is there a racial dimension to conservation? That was kind of the initial goal. But what I really was surprised to find, because I thought it would just be a simple matter of, uh, okay, we're, we're fine with slaves hunting and fishing because that benefits us as a slave owner. And then after emancipation, finding all this evidence about the labor question and some of these concerns then clearly whites want nothing to do with people of color being in the sporting field. But what I found was that was absolutely not the case. At the same time, uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of conservation officials and elite sportsmen are really trying hard to, to limit African-Americans' access. They're also thinking, you know, 
our idea of what it means to be an aristocrat and the sort of legacy of the old South that is making the South a tourist destination by the early 20th century depends upon the presence of people of color. And what, 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 what we saw is, uh, you know, sportsmen, especially Northern sportsmen, when they came down, you know, for an excursion, they expected to have African-American guides and laborers on those hunts. And uh, when these plantations were turned into sporting resorts, what they found was the people who knew what they were doing, who knew the game, who knew the land, who knew, you know, uh, the way to make these things effective hunts were by and large people of color, the people that had been doing it because they depended on it all their lives. And uh, so we started to see these resort plantations begin to employ African-American sportsmen. And it almost became like... Uh, part of the scenery. I remember a quote from a Chicago sportsman that I ran across in Field and Stream. And he said, if, if you're going to go to the South for a hunt, you got to make sure that you have Negroes. A Negro is as necessary to a hunt as cranberry sauce is to a Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, they were just that blunt about it. Like, this is part of recreating the Old South. Hmm. So on the one hand, it was like independent black sportsmen were, were some kind of a threat but dependent black sportsmen who were employed and were sort of visible markers of the old slavery system that they could lean on and say, see, this is still alive and well, was absolutely essential. So there was this one avenue of the Southern sporting field where African-Americans were being aggressively kind of pushed out, but then another side of the sporting field where they were being you know, held onto as necessary laborers. And that brings in like a, people like Holt Collier, these fascinating characters who become very famous and well-known sportsmen uh, at a time when African-Americans are largely being pushed out, except when in, in subordinate capacities. So it's, it was this kind of fascinating double-sided story for me of, of independence and a quest for larger independence on the one hand, and on the other hand, a quest to, to uh, kind of fold uh, control of hunting and fishing into another kind of method of Jim Crow, you know, racial domination. Yeah. And just, so just real quick, Holt Collier was this prolific Mississippi, uh, bear hunter, very much involved in the narrative, the hunting narrative of Theodore Roosevelt. And it's, you know, it's kind of been talked about quite a bit lately i'd actually encourage you to read an article i wrote for bear hunting magazine about Holt collier but uh basically you know the toy the teddy bear is kind of derivative from this famous hunt that holt collier took theodore roosevelt on in in mississippi uh and roosevelt ended up not killing that bear but holt collier kind of became famous because of his prowess in that hunt. And then I think later, actually a few years later, I think that he took Roosevelt on another hunt over in Louisiana. Where they yeah, did the cane breaks, I think. Yeah, yeah. over in, and they did kill a bear. But, uh, and Holt, I mean, Holt, you could do in 10 podcasts on Holt Collier. He's a fascinating figure. I mean, I absolutely as interesting uh, as Daniel Boone. But yeah, something we've talked about a little bit, which is, interesting to me is you know i'm even though i'm really more of a generalist hunter uh hold on a second ammo go lay down my dog's walking up here uh talk, start talking about duck hunting uh you know i'm definitely very rooted in the waterfowling world world right and the only 
examples. So waterfowling is, you know, you hear a lot of talk about like lineage and tradition and it's like a father to son pass mm-hmm. down kind of thing. And there's a lot of cool old, old photographs of, of people duck hunting. The only times I've seen old photographs of black people involved in duck hunting have been like these pictures in North Carolina where there's a deep uh, waterfowling tradition of like these black butlers in like white kind of tuxedo waiter uh, mm-hmm. outfits, like serving, you know, like hot drinks or hot toddies or something to white hunters, uh, like in pit blinds that are waterfowling. Right. So it's just, it's playing in all sorts of things or this idea of like guided waterfowling being this really catered to event. And, and then you still had these really weird, racial stereotypes and systems in place in that. And then also like if you talk about Arkansas in particular, uh, like uh, something we're known for in this region is this like world duck calling championship. As far as I know, there's only been one person who ever won that, that was black. But the most of the old photos I see are, they used to have a duck picking competition Mm -hmm. and it's black people picking ducks who can pick it the fastest because that's and even still now you'll find that to where that's a that's a a means of you know economy for folks is like plucking the ducks and preparing and kind of doing the messy rest of the work uh for people that have more means but so i've seen those two photographs and then you were telling me about like a postcard or something where it had a black person being depicted like retrieving swimming back with a duck in its mouth as as if they were like a, a dog like retrieving the ducks for people yeah it, it, it was a uh, it was a watercolor postcard and uh it had um you know the white sportsman you know in in the in the flooded woods in the flooded timber and you know hiding behind a tree and he obviously had just shot a, a bird of some kind and then in, in in the background in the photo is his his black guide and he's paddling back with with a duck in his mouth and those sort of images were, were extremely common. And, and I didn't expect that. I found, um, I mean, it's almost like you name it. Like you, you, you open up forest and stream from, from the late 19th century, early 20th century, and you're going to find discussions of Southern hunting and fishing. And there's going to be depictions of African-Americans in subordinate positions, in many cases, sort of intentionally curated subordinate positions. And one of the ones that... Uh, that amazed me, you know, there, there's this, there's this kind of long stereotype that exists in, 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 uh, in, uh, in these circles that, that African-Americans have this inherent connection to small game. Mm-hmm. And that's used by, as always been used by whites as kind of a marker of inferiority. Like, oh, well, whites pursue deer, you know, catamount and whatever. And African-Americans, they pursue possum and raccoon with their limited tastes or, you know, whatever the racial stereotype yeah. is. Nocturnal but, stuff as well. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about it, it's like, well, you know, you know, African-Americans go out there and hunt at night because they, that's some weird thing about that. No, you know, if, if you're busting your ass hundred hours a week to feed your family and you're trying to do this on the side, or if you're a slave trying to do it on the side, you're going to rely on nocturnal methods. You know, how can I get out there, set some traps and then come back home and go check them later? I mean, you're going to rely on whatever method works. Mm-hmm. So this sort of, um, narrative that, it, that, it, that emerges in the 19th century, at least in the South, that, you know, only certain hunting methods are acceptable, only certain hunting methods are, are worthy. In part, that's a racial thing in the South. That construct is sort of dividing 
the way white people hunt and the way black people should hunt. And then it's almost like the conservation laws that emerge in the South and the Jim Crow laws that emerge in the South are designed to make sure that happens. And I think it also connects to, um, to the, the kind of changing demography of the country. I think one of the things that, that, I, that I got into in the epilogue of the book was that sort of contemporary surveys about hunting and fishing and outdoor use shows that, you know, it would believe Americans, oh, African-Americans aren't interested in this stuff. They're just not doing anywhere near as much as whites. And people say, well, okay, I guess the his, these, these histories, these traditions are just white. No, there's this deep-rooted tradition uh, of, of the sporting field as a, as a marker of independence, a marker of autonomy, marker of subsistence, going way back. And then the combination of a racialized conservation system in the South, combined with Jim Crow, then combined with the fact that the Great Migration shifts the black population from being the, the most southern and rural population in the country statistically in 1890 to being the most northern and urban population in the country by 1990. It kind of gives this illusion that there's not this rich history uh, of African Americans doing this stuff. Do you, do you actually know? Because I've, I have... Uh leaned into that idea that you took a population of people that were almost entirely rural and Southern and it's been flip-flopped to Northern and urban. But then I've looked at stuff that says that actually maybe the most, you know, culturally visible black people are in Northern urban places, but that actually the majority of black people still live in the South. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, now I'm not sure about like rural versus urban, mm-hmm. but I think that most black people in the country actually live in the South. I think mm-hmm. it's more like 55, 45 or something. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's, it's always been right around there. Like 1990 was the year I, I, I saw in the, uh, in the census where it okay. said it indicated that it, that it become majority urban. That may have ticked back down again. Yeah. You know, with like, with like Atlant the Atlantas and stuff, mm-hmm. it might've, it might've flopped a little bit too. But yeah, but it was it was just really striking to me that there is this uh, there's this almost I don't know, how do I say this there's this real active sense that that a lot of uh, sporting enthusiasts have that you know this this history the African American history involved in hunting and fishing is is somehow not all that deep but it's 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 an incredibly rich history and it ties into some really significant and really you know kind of negative moments in our history and to me it's 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 about sort of breaking through the mythology of it mm-hmm. and you know it's like i i started to talk about these uh, like these post photos like you mentioned this one with the this watercolor of the, of the guide being depicted as, as a retriever basically yeah. you know this was so common you know the, you know you ever heard of these courier knives uh prints uh, courier knives did all these no. uh you know, thousands and a really popular, you know, company. And they did these uh, prints that appeared in magazines. And it could be, you know, little home scenes of romantic life in the North. Mm-hmm. Or it could be, you know, battlefield. You know, artists did these nice scenes. But one of the most popular themes in the late 19th century was Southern sporting scenes. Okay. And it was really common to depict African Americans in extremely negative, stereotypical ways in the context of the sporting field. There was a, a running, uh, kind of a running theme uh, in, 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 I'm not sure what magazine they were now that I think about it, but there were, there were these Courier Knives prints and the theme was the Coon Hunt Club. And the idea was, um, it's, it's a black hunt club. So they would depict like African-Americans on horseback 
hunting foxes. Mm-hmm. But in the scene, they're falling off the horse and the fox is laughing at them and they don't know what they're doing. So it's almost set up as like a marker of inferiority. Uh, I, 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 have one, I have one that I think I use in the book that shows two white sportsmen and they're clearly dressed in what at the time would have been recognized as like, you're some dude from the North who doesn't know what he's doing. You're like a sporting tourist. Yeah. And uh, he, they accidentally shoot their black guide in the butt and the guy's flying off the boat into the water, you know, with, with a shot in his rear end. And the idea was this is a humorous scene, you know, so depicting African-Americans in subordinate ways or in humorous ways or disposable ways. Yeah. Yeah. Disposable ways. Yeah. There's a real sense of, um, you know, your humanity is in the Jim Crow era now is, 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 is as valuable to us as your service beyond that. Not much. I, I always go back to something that, uh, this isn't about hunting and fishing, but there was a, um, an incident in Memphis, and it was like 1882 or something like that. Uh, this guy knifed to death two black passengers on, a, on a, um, a streetcar, and he was arrested and pulled before the judge, and the judge asked him, you know, why did you kill these two men? And all he said to the judge was, black life is cheap now. The idea mm. was, they're not slaves anymore, so what value do they have? Well, for, for a lot of elite sportsmen in the South, their value was in the sporting field as laborers, as kind of visual reminders that white over black racial hierarchy is still alive. And they took that image and they sold it to the rest of the country and it made the South an incredibly popular sporting destination. And uh, the one that, that blew me away the most, I, I found records from a gun club I can't remember if it was the Medway Plantation or the Kinlock Gun Club. It was a gun club in, in, uh, in Georgia or South Carolina. And I found a, a, their kind of published rates for the, the services they offered. Mm-hmm. And on their, on their form, it, it gave the wage, or not the wage, but the cost to go on an excursion with white guides and then a cost to go on an excursion with black guides. And it was more expensive to go on the excursion with black guides. Because it was Which, kind of like an, an added level of entertainment. Yeah, entertainment or authenticity. Mm. Like if, if you go to the South and spend big money on one of these really aristocratic hunting excursions and you don't have people of color serving you, did you really go to the South? You know, something like that. Yeah, it's like that gone with the wind kind of romanticism. Yeah, exactly. So I think um, there's this real kind of split that emerges. Uh, on the one hand, hey, African-Americans working and, and people being like Holt Collier. If, if your work in hunting and, field, hunting and fishing is in the service of whites, fantastic. But then independent hunting and fishing, well, that's what we have to go after with conservation laws and gun laws and, and things like that. You know, it's... I mean, just historically, this stuff is fascinating. It, it also gives me a lot of, you know, a room to pause and, and ponder and consider how this stuff impacts my life and like my position in the space right now and like what I'm doing. Um, you know, and I don't even know that I have any great conclusions to present to anybody right now. I'm just, I feel the need to express that, that it's like a lot of, it's a lot of stuff to think about, you know, like this idea about the value of black life or, you know, uh, the value of, you know, it makes me wonder sometimes about like my perceived value in the space and is it linked to uh, 
Hmm. This is, I'm, I'm having, kind of having trouble, uh, putting this into a concrete form. I, man, I would just leave it at that right now because I, it's just stuff for me to continue to think about. I'm sure the conversation will continue in other podcasts, but yeah, what, where is my value and what are people looking for it to be versus what I'm, you know, my expressions of self and, uh, you know, my own ideas of self-determination and the like. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think there is... I think it's a tremendously like, so, you know, you talked about like initially when you were starting to broach into these subjects with other academics or like mentor academics and people thinking there, maybe it wasn't a meaty enough mm-hmm. subject, man, it's, I feel like we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. And frankly, we have been talking about this, you know, like over the course of this weekend, this has come up in other ways and conversations we've had over zoom and on the phone. Uh, you know, I appreciate very much that, and I know you kind of came to the subject in like happenstance, but as we discussed when I was making breakfast, like there's not a ton of compiled information on this. Like you were, and if you look in the back of your book, there's a wealth of source material, but as far as it being like compilations mm-hmm. and then analysis of, there's not really very much. There's like one kind of about hunting during slavery. And we're talking about that. Uh, the guy who wrote that is Proctor. And then you've done this examination about, you know, and we're kind of talking about like what, 1865 to 1935 Mm -hmm. or something, maybe. Right. And and we're we're making these inferences about perceptions of hunting now and how hunting is practiced now. And I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, if you're thinking of black people as like, living in Chicago and New York and LA and stuff, you're probably thinking about people that don't have a lot of firsthand experience Mm -hmm. with hunting and like a, uh, an agrarian form of life. But if you go to the South, Mm -hmm. like this is where you find black hunters and this is where you find people that are existing on a lineage of being mm-hmm. black and hunting in the South that goes back as far as they can trace their history. Right. And you're, I mean, there are people, I mean, I've got a field lease down the road for me here, you know, that is, that is, that's owned by a black family that has held that property for over a hundred mm-hmm. years. Right. And when I first met them, like what they were showing me is their office and they're showing me all these mounted deer heads. You know, these guys are deer hunters. Uh, but yeah, that's that's absolutely normalized in generation after generation after generation in that family. And if you just, I mean, two doors down, there's this dude Tony and his parents, and they've got like four rabbit dogs out there, and you'll hear hear them go, whoa, 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 whoa. you know, these guys are these are houndsmen, right? And they exist in that lineage. And so you, if you're here in the South, uh, that is very prevalent. You know, fishing and small game hunting and deer hunting is kind of what I associate Mm -hmm. black hunting with. And then even, we haven't even talked about this, but when you're talking about kind of what we perceive as aristocratic hunting, and like if we go to the east in the south, further to the southeast, and we start dealing with like plantation culture, Mm -hmm. because we're in a part of the south where that kind of aristocratic plantation culture didn't take hold as much because it, it was settled by Europeans or people of European descent later. But, you know, if we get to the Carolinas and Georgia and stuff where you have these huge plantations and you have, like, uh, plantation quail hunting as a long tradition, right? Like, 
African-Americans are steeped in that history and uh, they might not have been visible in the publications about it, but, mm-hmm. you know, even during, I mean, especially during slavery and after, like the people training those bird dogs and that upland culture and the gamekeepers and the mm-hmm. managers, I mean, those are all black people, Yeah, you know? That, that's something I think, you know, that, that, that is missed generally and, and not just with hunting and fishing, like a good example, it's, it's out of the topic, so I'll be brief here, but like horse racing is a great example of this. So when, when horse racing really takes hold in the United States, in Maryland, Virginia, and Kentucky at first, uh, you know, these are slave owners because these are the guys that can afford the horses, afford the equipment, because it's fundamentally a, uh, what do we do to be like European aristocrats back in the day? You know, this is actually real quick worth mm-hmm. pointing out. When, so there was all different levels of, uh, of uh, you know, slave owners, mm-hmm. right? There were people that had one slave that like you know got passed down through a family or something but when we're when we're getting to like someone who owned a plantation because it's not just we're not just talking about the impetus for a plantation owner to own slaves even though it's multifaceted it's ultimately as an economic driver of their Mm -hmm. agricultural operation so you're talking about people that are very 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 wealthy yeah absolutely these are the what would become like the industrialist class. Absolutely. And, you know, for them, they were very intensely worried about, like, okay, I have to, especially in the South, you know, Southern honor demanded attention to this kind of stuff, especially for aristocrats. And, you know, their thought was, okay, what's, what's the required rich guy costume that I have to wear? Mm. And, and for sportsmen, you know, that would mean certain methods are, are acceptable and certain ones aren't. I have to have certain kind of equipment you know, this, you know, style of rifle is not good enough. I've got to, you know, there's all these markers of, mm-hmm. of status. And one of those markers of status, which you've got the requisite labor around you that can make you feel like an aristocrat. Uh, and then the same thing was taking place in the world of horse racing. The trainers, the jockeys, the, the handlers were all slaves in, in the South at that point. Um, you know, when the Kentucky Derby first started, you know, uh, I want to say something like eight of the first 10 Kentucky Derby winners were black. Uh, and so this was very much the tradition of horse racing, coming out of the slave South with slave trainers and slave jockeys. And then once we get to the Jim Crow era, um, it's a little different, I guess, than the hunting and fishing story, but we get to the Jim Crow era and there's this attempt like now nah, where we don't, we don't want, we don't want the, the black presence in, in this the way we used to. And uh, something like 19... 1920 something is the is the, the last time a black jockey rides in the Kentucky Derby until Marlon St. Julian uh, rides in the Derby in like 2002 or something like that. I mean it's a huge stretch. And it's kind of a similar thing that that happens in 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 the sporting world in a sense like um you know in 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 a subordinate capacity guides laborers people like Holt Collier they find not only a home, but, but a lucrative home, a, a home that affords them status. And, you know, there's people that revere Holt Collier in, in, in the South. Yeah, as, as, people, long as, they, as long as they contribute to that overall narrative. Exactly. Or, or at least uh, give the, the impression that they are. Yeah, and, you know, because and, and, Holt Collier is so exceptional in a sense. I mean, he's a, he's a former slave, and he's a, he's a recognized Confederate combat veteran because he mm-hmm. was a scout. Uh, so he was like the definition of, we love Holt Collier, but it's like, do you really? Or do you love what in your mind he represents, which is continued subordination? Yeah, it's about how, about how he's making you feel. Yeah, exactly. 
So in in a sense, you could say if you remove the sort of the you know the 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 paying work of being a hunting guide and and in that context, African Americans were deemed essential laborers to use a modern a modern mm-hmm. COVID term. Uh, but then all the rest of African American sportsmen were considered threats, and they were targets of you know not only the, the conservation laws but Jim Crow laws and violence. And then we create a situation where you see uh, kind of African-American engagement in hunting and fishing falls off uh, the rest of the 20th century. And then a lot of people are left with the illusion that, oh, well, this is a white thing. Well, it's not. Like you mentioned, there's still these pockets in the South where it's been an unbroken tradition forever. But I continue to meet people that say, I had no idea there was any kind of African-American story in, in this story. And like, I, I think a lot of people don't think of it that way. Yeah, but, and, and, to be, and to be fair, you'll, you'll meet lots of black people that think that it's, you know, because they're one or two generations removed from it. And, you know, for their life experience, it's not something that black people participate in. <laughs> but, you know, what I find, I find it so analogous to like swimming, right? And like, even on like TikTok and Instagram now, you're seeing all these like really cool videos of black people, dark skinned black people, like running and doing these crazy flips into these pristine blue oceans and it's like folks down like Turks and Caicos and the Bahamas and the Caribbean and stuff. Right. And so those black people like are born to swimming into the ocean and all that stuff. Right. The reason there's this idea or this perception in America that black people don't swim is because for a hundred years or maybe that's, you know, maybe not quite a hundred years, but close to it, you know, you've got, prohibitions of black people going to pools, uh, having access to beaches, Mm -hmm. like all that stuff. Right. So it's not that this isn't something that people do. It's something that they were prevented from doing. Yeah. And, and, and in many ways, human memory is very short. So if you haven't done it, then no one else has ever done that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's it's easy to to kind of not look past your own experiences. Yeah, you know? and you, you 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 raised a great example. I mean, uh, with with uh, with uh, with swimming, you know, there, there's a, there's a great book, um, and I'm totally blanking on the author and the book, which I apologize for, but it's on the history of black beaches, and it's it's kind of a, an eerily similar story to to the hunting and fishing story. You get into the Jim Crow period, and there's attempts to you know, reserve all recreational spaces for whites. But then there's also this sort of, I guess, practical acknowledgement that, look, our, our, our black citizens also need recreational spaces. So th- there's this kind of creation of this this whole universe of dramatically unsafe beaches and swimming holes across the South. And this book detailed all these just awful examples of uh, of drownings and people being exposed to chemicals and being put in all sorts of danger by being forced into only these kind of sketchy uh, swimming holes. And it was part of that larger Jim Crow campaign. And the end result is, I suppose, a certain amount of people say, well, black people don't swim. It's like, no, that this was something that was denied them. Uh, and like, there's a similar story at work uh, in the sporting field. Yeah, man, it's... Yeah, I feel like at some other point, man, we will uh, we will do another podcast and we will revisit some of this material. And uh, we've been starting to talk about some different ways, to maybe do some some collaborations and work together a little bit. But uh, man, this is this stuff is fascinating to me, and it's just rife for analysis and consideration. And I think it's important that 
you know, we know we, that we're informed human beings and we understand where we're coming from and some of the systems in place that are informing our ideas about why things are the way mm-hmm. they are. Uh, so again, man, I so appreciate that you wrote this book and that, you know, you've got years of research into this mm-hmm. and practical experience uh, with the academic side of it. And I'm so stoked to, to have been able to have you down here and put you on your first bird and hang out and just kick it, man. You know, it's, it's, it's been a fun weekend. I've enjoyed it. Uh, and yeah, thank you so much for coming down. Thank you for doing the podcast, man. It's been a blast. Hey, and, and, you know, thank you. This has been a tremendous weekend. Uh, the, the hunt was amazing. I've enjoyed just kind of hanging out and, you know, I like, uh, I nerd out on how things work. So you being sympathetic to my many questions and you explaining to me how this stuff works, it's been really interesting. And I hope we get a chance to do a lot more down the road. Yeah, for sure, bud. Well, all right, folks, thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, folks. As always, I've been getting quite a few texts and Instagram messages, emails from folks telling me that they're listening, they're appreciating the podcast, and I can't tell you how incredibly validating that is. I'm really enjoying putting it out and producing it, and I'm so happy to hear that some of y'all are uh, enjoying it and finding some resonance with it as well. If you'd like to help out, and help the podcast grow, reach more listeners, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, write a review. That helps out tremendously. As always, this podcast is produced by Jonathan Wilkins and Brian Sachs with title track music from Dr. Bionic from Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to keep up with me and what's going on at Black Duck Revival, easiest way to do that is by following me on Instagram at Black Duck Revival or over on the website blackduckrevival.com. That's where you can book hunts, book fishing trips, read articles, and just kind of generally keep up with what is going on at Black Duck Revival. I so appreciate y'all listening. Please tune in next week. Until next time. Mm-hmm.